the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. It reads like a laundry list that could have been created by the devil himself. Terrorist attacks, mass shooting attacks on campuses, political strife, racism, economic instability, moral decline, church attendance decline, certainly true here in the San Francisco Bay Area. And it has to make you pause and wonder as we take account of what's going on not only on the the stage um, morally, spiritually, politically across the globe, but certainly here at home, exactly what's going on. Where is the church? Where should we as Christians be in addressing all of this? Because we know ultimately the insights and the key to not only what's wrong, but what the solution is, is ultimately found in Scripture. A very special conference coming to the San Francisco Bay Area this weekend. We'll give you more details on that. But uh, meanwhile, I'd like to invite into our conversation tonight Pastor Andrew Chavaria. He is the pastor at Elkhart Church of Christ, a U.S. Army veteran, co-founder of Liberty Cannon Media Group, the executive director of the Truth and Liberty Foundation. It speaks all across the country in the topic of uh, culture, God, government, and where our nation is today, where it's headed spiritually, and most importantly, where is the church we need to be? And Andrew, great to have you on the program. Hey, thanks for having me on. Uh, We appreciate the opportunity. Boy, you know, kind of uh, taking the temperature, so to speak, morally and spiritually of where America is at today, it it would seem that not only are we in trouble, but many would wonder, where does the church stand in all of this? I mean, it wasn't all that long ago that the mainstream church in America seemed to be supercharged politically. That certainly was true in the 1980s. We were on the cutting edge of of addressing many moral and spiritual issues, both from the pulpit as well as uh, from a political standpoint. But it seems as if in in recent years there's kind of been an atrophying of not only the the church's um, influence in the governance of our nation, but but even in terms of just our our overall influence in in the day-to-day life in America. Why is that? You know, I I think it boils down to to, uh, the simple aspect of turnover. Uh, When you think about, and what I mean by that is we've lost some of the wise and old leadership that we had in the 80s and we've now turned to individuals that grew up in the 60s and the 70s those that grew up during the sexual revolution and uh, those that grew up in a day and age where uh, quite frankly uh, the theory of evolution and all of these things during the space race kind of rude the day in the classroom and um, 
quite simply, I think Abraham Lincoln put it best. He said, the philosophy of the classroom in one generation will be the philosophy of the government in the next. And uh, we now see what happens when you remove God. I mean, when you start about 1965, uh, 1965, we start removing God from the classroom. We start, uh, we start uh, going, going progressively through the years. We remove the Bible from classrooms. We remove prayer from classrooms. Um, then we start getting into the 70s, and now abortion becomes the norm with Roe v. Wade. Uh, then you get into the 90s, homosexuality uh, gets on the platform, and uh, now you get into the 2000s, and it's, it's the law of the land. Well, how did all of this happen? Well, it happens because people that grew up already sensitizing themselves to this aspect of life kind of just just stay back and and you know like i said i mean abraham lincoln said it best this is now the philosophy of our government and we now live in a place and time where um i think and this is just my personal philosophy it's one of the reasons that i travel the country talking about this stuff um i think that it's also weighed heavy on our pulpits our pulpits aren't the same anymore they're so watered down and uh preaching a a, you know they're they're basically giving people a stick of cotton candy when they walk through the door and there's no truth being preached anymore so really in in a large sense then this is sort of the product of erosion i mean the the old saying that the drip becomes the trickle that turns into the stream that becomes the river and before you know it it's cut the grand canyon and in some respects while we can't point to any singular event that um, is at the center of this. It's many of the events. It, it, it's, uh, you know, kicking God out of the classroom. Uh, you know, dare we put up the Ten Commandments to encourage students to do things like, I don't know, not steal, not kill, not lie, obey their parents, things of that sort. And so all of a sudden, then, you have a combination of what's taking place not only at the institutional level, within public education, certainly within right. higher education, the body politic, then we add to that. I think you're right. Some some levels of frustration in the pulpit in America today that and certainly this is not meant to be a blanket accusation, Pastor, yeah. but there are some pastors, I think, that would conclude that, you know, if I get up there and I start preaching sin, salvation, sanctification, start really talking about the tough, serious stuff that we see in Scripture, there'll be nobody there on Sunday morning. And, you know, we've got to pay an electric light bill and I have a salary that has to be paid. And, you know, we need to put new carpeting in the church. So I'm going to have to go a little bit easier on all of this. And as a result, we end up watering down the effectiveness of the gospel to the point where it has no effect. Right. And, and to me, when, when that happens, and, and I mean, it, it's textbook. You see churches like this popping up everywhere, um, you know, multi-million dollar buildings. They have the whole, you know, the whole band, the lights, the smoke, everything like that, uh, to draw people to come in and do those things. And the sermon is just so fluffy that you just really don't get anything out of it. But I, I think what that is a product of is that's a product of Christians who have lost their identity. You know, when we when we start, and here's what I mean by that. So many people think that you go to church. And here's the thing. Is, is, and you got, and, and I, you're, this is coming from a guy that stands up almost every single Sunday behind a pulpit somewhere. If not my home church, I'm somewhere preaching and teaching the gospel. So, so just, you know, <laughs> stick with me when I say it, because I'm kind of talking to myself. But... You don't come to church. You go to worship God. The Bible actually teaches Christians that we are the church. We're the ones that are called out. And when we get that in our mind, when we start realizing that that is our identity, we are the church, and we stop going to church and we start going to worship God, it doesn't matter what the pastor, the preacher, the evangelist, the reverend, the minister, I don't care what you call it, it doesn't matter what he says. If it's true, you're there to worship God and you're going to accept it. 
So then the real distinction here is the difference between going to church and being the church. Yep. And that's why we are where we are today. And the the catalyst that, that this has happened, the reason that this has happened is because of the pulpit. Um, you know, Charles Finney is probably one of my favorite characters during the American Revolution. He was a, he was a cleric during the American Revolution. And he actually says, I mean, and I'm just going to kind of quote this pretty quick, but he says, Brethren, our preaching will bear its legitimate fruits. If immorality prevails in the land, the fault is ours in a great degree. Mm. Listen to what he says next, though. He says, if there is co- if there is a decay of conscience, the pulpit is responsible for it. He says, if the press, if the public press lacks moral discrimination, the pulpit is responsible for it. If the church grows degenerate and worldly, the pulpit is responsible for it. He goes on and he says, if the world loses interest in religion, that's key right now. That's You talked about in the introduction that so many people, even in the Bay Area, to a low attendance in churches. If people lose interest in religion, he says the pulpit's responsible for it. But I want you to see what happens next, because this is what we're talking about, the climate of where we are as a nation right now. He says if Satan rules in the halls of legislation, the pulpit is responsible for it. If our politics become so corrupt that the very foundation of our government is ready to fall away, the pulpit is responsible for it. Then he concludes, he says, let us not ignore this fact, my dear brethren, but let us lay to heart and be thoroughly awake to our responsibility in respect to the morals of this nation. The reason that Charles Finney could speak so boldly that way is because when we declared our independence, when we declared our independence, the king did not attribute George Washington, he did not attribute the Continental Army, he did not attribute the militia and the Minutemen, the, per, the, the people that they attributed American independence to, that our enemy attributed American independence to, was a group that he called the Black Robe Regiment. It was the pastors and the preachers of the day. He said it's because they're preaching truth and they're preaching liberty in Christ and they're preaching what we don't want them to preach. And that's where America spurned its freedom from. The pulpit was responsible for American freedom. Well, ironically enough, uh, you know, even a a stranger to our land, a visitor, uh, de Tocqueville, made the exact same observation in terms of the impact and importance of what takes place at the pulpit. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, we have to recognize, and when we talk about things such as a moral code, that the Bible is the standard setter, but it is the church that is the standard bearer. And if we're not willing to bear the standard that Scripture sets for us and make that proclamation from the pulpit and live it out in the pews, uh, then I think the observations of, of, of Fenny, as, as uncomfortable as they may be, are perhaps sadly bang on. We'll take a brief time out. We'll come back to more of our conversation. Our special guest in this segment of the program is Pastor Andrew Chavaria as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. One of the issues here, perhaps at hand, is we're sort of um, doing some quarterbacking and analysis of what's happened in the the moral and spiritual decline in America in the last generation, maybe going on two generations now. One of, I think, the issues uh, that is contributory to all of this uh, is the perception, real or otherwise, that there is a tremendous amount of disunity 
within the body of Christ. Now, let me hasten to add, some people say, well, you know, that's the problem with doctrine. Doctrine divides. Well, doctrine should divide. Uh, There is a reason why Christ even himself talked about separating the wheat from the chaff. So good, sound doctrine is critically important. That's not the kind of disunity I'm talking about. It's the sense of everybody kind of their own corner, doing their own thing, um, not not giving much concern to a sense of quality cooperation with one mind, one heart, one spirit, uh, one goal of what Christ has called us to do, uh, to love our God, to love our neighbors as we love ourselves, and of course to go about uh, the Great Commission and sharing the gospel in all the world. I think the effectiveness of that really is compromised when there is a tremendous sense of disunity about the body in many respects just because we're too busy doing our own thing, or we feel uh, intimidated because somebody may be a little bit more successful in one arena or another than we are. And so, you know, rather than working together, we shy away from it because we feel uh, a bit intimidated. Uh, what about that perspective, uh, Pastor Chavarria? Is this issue of, of a lack of unity contributory to this problem? You know, I, I think it is. I really think it is. I think the modern American church uh, today is so disjointed that that's why we can't find a foothold um, in making America what Ronald Reagan called that shining city on a hill. Um, you know, and we're, we're so disjointed to the part, there is, you're right, sound doctrine is needed. I mean, you know, one of the ways that I break it down for, and this kind of makes it real for people, is the Bible took about approximately 1,600 years to write. It was 40 different authors, 300 years between the two testaments where God didn't reveal himself to anyone. Then you have those 40 different guys that you have to talk about that didn't ever cross paths, but the central message is Jesus. And God took a lot of time to preserve all of that for us. And uh, when you think about it that way, you know, it's really easy to say, you know, God said what he meant, and he meant what he said. And one of the things that God says in the word in the book of First Corinthians is uh, in First Corinthians chapter one verse eleven, Paul says, "Let there be no divisions among you." You know, the, the nom- I'm a part of a group. Uh, it's called the Radicals, and uh, we all have different quote unquote denominational backgrounds. Everybody has a different denominational background, uh, but we all agreed, and everybody's a Christian leader or a pastor, or a preacher somewhere. But we started this group together. We meet every Tuesday night uh, on a, on a video platform, and we all started meeting together. And, and among us, there's millions of people that follow us on social media and and uh, and come to our churches and hear us preach. We all agreed that it was time in America to break down the walls of denominationalism and to start being Christians. That's it. The Bible doesn't, you know, it's funny. The Bible doesn't mention the word, and I know this might step on some people's toes, but if you want to hear and understand more about what I'm going to say, we'll talk about the event that I'm talking about later. But the Bible never says Catholic. The Bible never says Pentecostal. The Bible never says Baptist. The Bible never says Methodist. The Bible calls those that follow after Jesus Christians. And when we start following Jesus and we start deciding to be Christians, man, that's unity. That's oneness. We have the doctrine. The doctrine is the word of God. That's the Bible. We have that. And if we can stick to that and we just call ourselves Christians, 
we will turn, not not the nation, we'll turn the world upside Well, of course, one of the other challenges, I think, that's contributory that goes hand in hand with that, and not only that sense of, of competition as opposed to cooperation, but also the fact that sometimes there's so much of an emphasis on, on doing as opposed to being, and I think that goes to the heart of another big issue, and that is just a, a lack of really understanding what true discipleship really <laughs> looks like. People think I show up to church on Sunday morning, drop a couple of bucks in the offering plate, uh, you know, whenever there's a bake sale, I always be sure to contribute, and they think that therefore qualifies them uh, as a quote-unquote Christian, but they've never been through a discipleship process, they don't know how to pray, they don't know how to read the Word, they've never shared their faith with another person. Right, right. We just basically convert people, and then we throw them to the wolves and expect them to be mature Christians, and it's just never going to work. Yeah, and when it doesn't work out, then we wonder why. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it never, it's never worked out that way. And that's what we do, honestly, and that's what we're doing to our young people today. And if you look, um, we're losing probably about 70%, 60 to 70% of our youth groups leave the church and don't come back by the time they hit college age. We're losing them to sec- we're losing them to secular progressivism. Mm. And uh and, and that that's a big that's a staggering number. Sixty to seventy percent. In the churches of Christ it's higher than that. It's seventy five to eighty percent. Um but I you know, like I said, I preach for I'll, I'll preach at any church they want me to come and speak at. Uh but but here's the thing. Here's the thing with that and it, it's it's very simple. It's very simple because I, I mentioned the word identity. I'm a, I'm a big talker when it comes to identity. And um, one of the things that people like to pawn off now, and you've probably heard it said, um, people probably said it, I know I've said it. We tell people all the time, hey, I'm just, I'm, I'm a sinner just like you. And, and that's true to a degree, but I'm not a sinner anymore. I'm saved. And, and the reason that we tell people I'm a sinner just like you is because of the next phrase that we say after that. We tell people, because, you know, look, man, all you have to do is follow Jesus. That's it. All you have to do is follow Jesus. But Paul, you know, going back to the book of 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, Paul says, follow me or imitate me as I imitate Christ. You see, we, and Jesus in the Great Commission in Matthew 28 and Mark 16, he tells us to go and make disciples. You know, so we have a responsibility as Christians to be an example and to disciple, teach them in the ways in which to follow after Jesus. And we don't want to do that anymore. So we just tell people, hey, I'm a sinner just like you. All you have to do is follow Jesus, because that takes the whole don't don't follow me. Don't. But here's the thing. Me as a Christian, as a church leader. I want people to follow me. I want people behind me because that means that there's somebody behind me to catch me when I fall. That means that there's somebody behind me to lift me up when I'm down. You know, so it's okay to teach somebody. And and we don't want to be vulnerable, but you have to be vulnerable when it comes to following Jesus because it's an ultimate act of submission. Well, moreover, that whole notion of iron sharpening iron, that seems yeah. to be a component that's sort of missing. And I think that's also been uh, part of the, the, the fallout of the so-called megachurch movement. And that is that it becomes so impersonal, so disconnected, that there's not that, that human touch, that intimacy, that iron sharpening iron that yeah. Scripture talks of, that is ne- necessary to take place for, I think, true discipleship to form. Yeah. Now, that said, let's talk about um, this um, Spiritual Renewal Weekend. Give us details, if you would, Andrew. Yeah, normally when I, I go and speak somewhere, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and uh, one of the things that I, that I want to do over the, over three days, I'm going to be I'm going to do six lessons in three days. 
um, on being one. So it doesn't matter what your faith background is. You don't have to be a member of the Church of Christ to come to this event. If you if you have if you're going to a community church, if you're going to it doesn't matter what kind of church you're going to. We want you to come to this event because here's the thing is. Um, and here's what I'm going to be focusing on. In Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 12, the, the, the writer says the word, he uses the first word. The word is remember. So this is something for all of us that we all have to remember, that you one time were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. We've all been there. We've all not had this hope. Well, you know what God did give us? God did give us hope. In verse 19 of that same chapter, he says, So then now you're no longer strangers and aliens, but now you're a fellow citizen with the saints and are in God's household. If you and I, and it doesn't matter where we came from, it doesn't matter who we are, it doesn't matter how much money we make, what we wear, how much clothes, you know, what we drive, none of that's going to matter. If you are willing to follow Jesus and make Jesus your identity, you're not going to be a stranger anymore. And you're going to be a citizen of God's household. And what we want to talk about over these three days is renew our spirits to be one household. This sense of, of, the, the, the sense of cooperation, the sense of working together, the, the sense of building each other up. Because only when we start to do that will we start building our nation back up. Andrew, if folks want to get more information about this, uh, where's the best place for them to go? Uh, AndrewChavarria.com. It's, uh, it's a long last name. I know C-H-A-V-A-R-R-I-L-L-A. Andrew, before that, AndrewChavarria.com. Um, or find me on Twitter. There's a link straight to my, my website on Twitter. It's at Church Patriot. It's really easy. Uh, if you follow me on Twitter, you'll be able to find my Facebook, my website, and all the times of the dates and everything are listed there. And, of course, you know, even if you just Google it, you know, uh, <laughs> bowing to the difficulty of your last name, I yeah. found if you just Google Andrew and just get into Shava, R-I-L, yeah. you'll, you'll, you'll find him that way, too. Or, again, the yeah. Twitter at, at Church Patriot. Well, Andrew, we appreciate the time and the insights and encourage listeners, hey, this is a good way to get a deeper understanding about what Christ wants for the church when he prayed that we would all be one what does not only that that look like but what does it mean in terms of being able to increase the effectiveness and the impact of the church on the world around us as i said earlier while the bible is the standard setter the church is the standard bearer our thanks to pastor andrew chavaria for being with us tonight on this segment of lifeline and now back to lifeline with craig roberts Back in the 1970s, people of faith, evangelical Christians, people who were believers in a Judeo-Christian, biblically-based moral code or ethic, were referred to as the silent majority. Well, here we are, fast forward the clock 40-something years, and we're not so silent anymore, and we are definitely in what appears to be a growing minority. What has happened with this major paradigm shift, where what had once been considered normative and mainstream is now all of a sudden, well, from one end of the continuum, irrelevant to the other, considered extreme. Well, some insights on not just the shift, but also how we who are most impacted by this shift can appropriately and effectively respond to it. We take a look at 
good faith being a Christian when society thinks you're irrelevant and extreme. Joining me is the president of the Barna Group, a leading research and communications company that I know you're very well familiar with, Dave Kinneman. And David, thanks so much for being on the program. Thanks so much for having me, Craig. Boy, uh, certainly this election cycle is proving uh, this point to a tremendous degree. Try to have any kind of a civil conversation with people of opposing viewpoints, and you suddenly realize that we've made the paradigm shift for what had been, uh, for the most part, 2,000 years of historic Christian faith and mores, and now all of a sudden we are the ones considered the extremists. What's going on? Well, I think there's a lot of cultural changes that are taking place, but I mean, certainly the data bear that out, that a majority of Americans now uh, think that, that that religion as its practice can be part of the problem. So, for example, we find that if you were to share your faith with somebody, 60% of Americans believe that's a socially extremist thing to do. Uh, it's okay if someone came to you and asked about your faith and wanted to find out more, but if you try to actively evangelize somebody to try to talk somebody who wasn't really all that is interested in listening uh, into your faith, then, then that's viewed as extremism. So the, really the way we conclude um, in this project about what's happening is that the the society that we live in is changing its mind about the Christian way of living, and that, that's evangelism, that's attitudes towards sex and sexuality, that's public expressions of religion. Uh, Christianity is increasingly viewed, as you mentioned, as extreme extremist or as irrelevant and and so Christians are really struggling with what to do with that. We are struggling indeed, and of course, at some levels, it's hard to uh, hard not to internalize a lot of this or, or take it uh, tremendously personally. I mean, many of us that are old enough to remember a day and an age when we were kind of in the mainstream and when expressing views, for example, of uh, believing in the moral code, sharing our faith, marital faithfulness, uh, biblical errancy kind of put us in the, in the norm, and all of a sudden now, that's considered to be extremist, and in some camps, uh, things like prohibiting young women from from getting an education, forcing them to dress in black and cover their faces in public, and even executing people for not believing, that's, that's okay. Yeah, well, I think this is, you know, obviously you're speaking about Islam and other countries, but in the United States, what's interesting is that um, Americans are changing their mind around a lot of things. So sex and sexuality, uh, praying for people in public, public expressions of evangelism. And what we find in the research is that a majority of American Christians are feeling very pressured. Uh, in fact, a majority are feeling uh, persecuted. They use that term to describe their faith and culture today. Uh, my co-author of this book, Good Faith, and I are careful not to use the term persecution. So we don't think that that's the way that pe- people in North America are currently. We're not being persecuted in the same way uh, that people around the world are being persecuted, as you mentioned, um, in, in, you know, in, in the Middle East and in other kind of contexts. Christians can face very brutal um, suppression of faith. But in, in the United States, we do think that there is a, a new level of pressure. There's certainly more skeptics, that is, people that are, that are um, you know, skeptical about faith and religion in America. Um, and that's actually the fastest growing, quote-unquote, faith group is people that are religiously unaffiliated. 
And so I think there's a lot of things that are that are making for a more pressure-filled environment for today's Christians. And among younger Christians, a group of people that we spend a lot of time studying here at Barna, millennials, um, people that are in their teens and young adults, they're, they're telling us that they're often afraid to speak up on behalf of their faith. They're feeling pressured. They're feeling silenced. They're feeling sidelined. And, you know, listen, we actually find good evidence that they're sticking up for their faith, that they're a bright light in the midst of a very dark generation. But those are perceptions that we have to take stock of, that they're feeling pressure, they're feeling as though their faith doesn't matter in the world. So how do we help to fortify them in their faith? And that's really what we did with this project, was to try to help Christians navigate these very difficult conversations that we're having now about faith and culture, why Christianity still matters, why we can be irrelevant and extreme, and that is actually what Jesus is calling us to be in the very best way possible. Is part of this then ultimately, David, to change up both our perspective on this and the dialogue, because I think at the core, uh, people of faith, Bible believers, those that have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, we know the relevancy of the gospel. The problem is that maybe the methodology and manner in which we have communicated that has failed in some respects to keep up with the times, and the world and culture around us has changed and changed very dramatically. Technology has a part, I think, uh, to play in all of that, and now suddenly we feel kind of like the children of Israel although here we are living in exile in our own country. Yeah, this theme of exile is a key theme that we bring up in our in our work, um, and I think our research really bears that out. That Christian, you know, Christianity is a ma- still a majority of Americans. People identify as Christian, uh, but the evangelical community is is really only about um, one in ten Americans, depending on how you measure it. And um, and listen, you, you know, for those of us who are very committed to Scripture and committed to Jesus, that um, we're we're really much more countercultural than we realize and you know we think we're living in mostly a christianized country but that's just not really the case in fact what's happening is not just a non-christian culture it's a a, it's a it's a selfish and narcissistic culture and sometimes frankly we're as christians part of that there's this document this we document in the book this new rise of the self as the new sort of god of the age and everyone's sort of looking at themselves as their own sort of spiritual judge and jury in fact we found that 91 percent of americans say the best way to find themselves is to look within themselves. And and so that's just very counter to what Scripture tells us, that the best way to find ourselves is to discover ourselves in a truth outside of ourselves, in Scripture, in Jesus, in the traditions of the Church. And so uh, to, to find ourselves, you know, we, we really need to look at those those external sources of truth in Jesus. Uh, but mostly our culture is changing its mind and wants to be, uh, you know, kind of its own judge and jury. And so, yeah, that's really part of what we were working on this book to do was to help Christians navigate those really difficult conversations about how to have a countercultural view towards living faithfully today. And, of course, the irony is if you look at a couple of letter uh, levels, both in terms of sort of the, the, the governmental engagement um, as well as the the religiosity engagement, uh, this is certainly not a new challenge from Christ's perspective, is it? I mean, he had to contend with not only Rome, but he certainly had to contend with the Church of the day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so in terms of that engagement at that level, uh, no surprise to Jesus. It's just for us, well, this is the first time we've kind of experienced it, at least here in America, isn't it? 
I think that's exactly right. And I mean, I think it's a, it's a, it's a great perceptive question because we're dealing with several challenges, many challenges in, in American culture today, one of which is uh, the changing social landscape and the fact that in a lot of ways, it's not just that the Bible has less authority. Almost every institution has less authority in Americans' lives than it did a decade or two decades ago. The Bible has less authority. The church has less authority. Government has less authority. Media, political leaders. Uh, we're living in a celebrity age, and that's just one indication of the sort of self-centered, narcissistic, god of self kind of world that we live in. But the other problems, really, if we're taking stock of this, is that you know the church is often very self-righteous in its orientation to the world. And if we read scripture carefully, um, we can find that you know one of the bigger problems in in the world isn't just the unrighteousness of society, isn't just the ways in which we're godless as a culture. It's it's about the ways the church loses its moral path towards righteousness in Christ, not through our own power. And the message of Galatians is this very thing, is that you, know, you, start your, you start your spiritual journey in Jesus, but then you try to perfect it through human effort. And I think that we have to be pretty hard on ourselves when we find that self-righteousness is creeping into our Christian communities. And it happens all the time. Uh, you know, every day, all of us as Christians can, can veer towards self-righteous judgmentalism, which is just as much a problem as the unrighteousness in the world that we're trying to solve. Let's pause on that point. We're going to pick up more of the dialogue on the other side here. As we're visiting with David Kinneman. David is the president of the Barna Group, an internationally recognized research and communications company. George Barna has been a guest on this program many times down through the years. David is co-author of a new book called Good Faith, Being a Christian When Society Thinks You're irrelevance and extreme. We'll continue our conversation on how to learn and counter all of that as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. How do we deal with, quite frankly, living in an outright hostile culture towards Christians and people of faith in that sense that we have become suddenly, well, frankly, irrelevant and extreme in the views of some. And part of the challenge, of course, here is uh, changing attitudes. And I think perhaps our uh, guest tonight would agree that the most critical attitude regarding such matters that needs to be changed, in fact, the only one that we really ultimately have any control over is our own. David Kinneman is the president of the Barna Group and co-author of Good Faith, Being a Christian When Society Thinks You're Irrelevant and Extreme. Let's talk about attitudes, and particularly those of us, I think, that challenge or feel challenged by all of this, David, and yet um, sometimes take the self-righteous position that, well, they're the ones that fall, not me. Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest challenges uh, that people have today in the church. And my dad is a lifelong pastor, has this great line that Jesus is just as concerned about our self-righteousness in the church as he is about the unrighteousness in the world. And I think that's um, that's a very apt statement. And so, um, you know, when you look in the, in the New Testament, uh, Paul is primarily concerned, if not almost exclusively concerned about the faithfulness of the of of the church um you know in revelation where john's writing about uh his his revelation of jesus in the early chapters about the the seven churches in in um in asia minor modern day turkey he basically says you know the, the faithfulness of those seven church bodies in those different communities in philadelphia and pergamum and um you know ephesus that that the faithfulness of those churches is the thing that will change culture uh in so many ways in so many words so i think this is one of the the key things that we try to do with our 
our project was to, to say to, to Christians, there's a way to live with good faith, even when society thinks that we're irrelevant and extreme, um, that there's a way for us to have these difficult conversations when it looks at we're trying to help our, our, our kids and our grandkids and our millennial you know, teenagers and youth to try to understand what it means to live faithfully, that there's, there's a way to do this. And we, we actually think that, that we can approach this very challenging, contentious culture with joy, with Jesus' love in our hearts, with uh, the truth in, from Scripture, not, not watering down uh, the truth of Scripture. And so that's really a lot of the things that we were trying to do was to help people have those difficult conversations in their, in their churches and in their families. Part of the challenge here, too, is we talk about changing the dialogue here, changing attitudes and viewpoint. I mean, historically, and I, I think we've seen this over even uh, the last many election cycles, where as people of faith have been kind of drawn into the political arena, we see much of what needs to be done in terms of uh, resolving moral issues and societal problems is just that. They are problems to be solved, as opposed to what would be, I think, uniquely Christ's take on all of this, and that is that these are people in need of a Savior. They're, they're, they're people that are walking apart from God that don't know Him personally. They may have problems, to be sure, but the goal here, ultimately, the powerful approach is not going to be to simply try to be problem-focused, but rather relationship-focused, no? Yeah, absolutely. And and we make the argument in the project that, you know, it's not just issues to be solved, but people to be loved. And and we love them. We lead with our love. Love is the preeminent virtue. I think a lot of times Christians worry about loving people too much that it might somehow condone the wrong behaviors or wrong perspectives. Uh, but love never works that way as we read in Scripture. And it doesn't mean that we, um, you know, condone people's behaviors. But there's a certain degree to which, you know, when we understand how love works and how the countercultural truth of Scripture, and I don't want to underestimate that. It's truth and grace. Uh, that that love really is is part of what we're trying to call people to. So in in the book, we basically make the argument that, that that good faith works when we love people as Jesus does at cost to ourselves. That we trust the countercultural truths of Scripture, and then we live that out by bringing the you know restoration into the brokenness of people's lives. So you know, a lot of times I think people struggle because when we love people well, we're actually trying to restore them to God's original intent as a generous person, as a person of joy and faith. Um, and, and a lot of times uh, their their own brokenness has brought them to a place where they can't really experience that. And so our love through Christ actually helps to restore them to that original intent that Jesus has for them. So it's not becoming wishy-washy when it comes to our morals or what we believe in. In fact, in some respects, it might be strengthening that because one of the big arguments that I often hear from people that are not of faith that say, oh, you Christians, you you know, you, you talk a good game, but try to engage in dialogue, and you can't even give an articulate reason uh, of what you believe, let alone why you believe it. So it, it's not a matter of, of letting go or compromising our beliefs, but maybe in some ways, David, learning more about them and then being able to, uh, with clarity, as well as a, a sense of, of self-confidence, engage in a non-defensive faction, a fashion in giving reasons for our faith? Absolutely. And, you know, just to give you a little bit of like what caused us to write this book, which I think answers that question that you're you're asking is, you know, we I have a 16-year-old, a 15-year-old, an 11-year-old, two girls and a boy. Uh, my co-author, Gabe Lyons, also has teenagers. We're in our mid-40s or early 40s, 42. And um, giving, I'm aging myself here as we talk. <laughs> I'm 42 years old. And, and, you know, so we kind of thought about like, what do we do to help our own kids in an era when it's not just enough to have the right answer, you know, like, 
like the apologetic, you know, handbook, and you kind of look up, and it's, you know, here's the answer to that particular theological problem or apologetic question. And that's still important, but the question is, how do we live, and how do we um, understand this very skeptical culture, this exile, this modern-day exile that we're kind of living in, and then how do we live that out? And so what motivated us to draw, to write this this book, um, along with the data that we collected on behalf of this project and the problems, the pressure that Christian community is feeling, was really our own our own experience with our kids about trying to give them confidence that Christianity actually does matter. It is it does answer the questions of a complicated age. Your you know their peers, their their millennial peers who are increasingly living a spiritual but not Christian life need to understand the importance of Jesus in their lives. And so we were we were really trying to fortify our own children to give them uh, confidence that, that Christianity is going to matter in their, in their lives, again, for some of those difficult conversations that they are going to face. Is it important, too, in your opinion, uh, David, and based on the research, that we, that we give the other side a chance to hear them out, at least to hear their heart? And I ask that question because so often as I've watched uh, a Christian in dialogue with another believer or non-believer, that they, they seem to be concentrating not on what's being said or the heart of the individual, but rather ready to pounce with a response or an answer or a counterpoint. Um, And the irony is if you sit down and talk to the average person out there who was not an individual of faith and kind of, I find, dig down into what motivates them, what drives them, that while some of the ultimate opinions that they hold or moral positions that they may have, we might find, uh, you know, in the range from, uh, you know, disappointing to outright disgust, yet oftentimes we, we can find at least some nuggets that, while perhaps misinformed, it, it, at least there's something genuine in there that, that, that maybe we can use as a starting point to engage in dialogue. Yeah, absolutely. I think you've hit the nail on the head, and it's really one of the purposes for the book was to try to give people an understanding of the heart behind opposing opposing viewpoints, behind someone who would have a very different point of view, uh, to try to understand that you see these individuals as people first, not as arguments to be won or issues to be solved, but as, as we said earlier, as people to be loved. And, um, you know, G- Jesus has this incredible countercultural way. I mean, he's the hardest... Uh, the most sort of, uh, you, you know, uh, difficult in his conversations with uh, with religious insiders, and he's the most compassionate towards people who have a very different point of view, um, you know, towards women, towards sinners, towards individuals who would, would seem to be at odds with his, you know, very message. And um, and I think that's that's so important for us as Christians today is to to realize that um, you know think of the last time someone came to your door and knocked and really persuaded you by uh, you know argumentation about the you know Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon or someone who came maybe to evangelize and it's just like we're never persuaded in that way. Um, you know, they're looking for people who aren't really settled in their beliefs. They're looking for people who can be persuaded. And I think sometimes we end up looking at everyone as like a target. And Jesus asked us to be evangelistic, to go and make disciples, but not to go look, you know, to go to target hunting. And I think that's an important distinction to really see the friendships, the heart behind people who disagree, the fact that we can love people, even if they never, dis- uh, never end up agreeing with us in this earthly life. Again, we want to try to pray for them and to talk about about you know the, the the truth is Christ and as, as He's changed our own lives, but but again, changing the metric of success from simply getting someone converted uh, to really becoming really deep friends that that you know we're able to say Jesus has changed our lives. Could he, could he, in fact, change your life? And even deeper still, oftentimes I think the approach is we're simply trying to win the argument. 
um, as opposed to win somebody for Christ or or, or love them uh, in a fashion that while yes we know ultimately we, we have a concern for their soul and yet uh, first and foremost uh, to demonstrate uh, the love that God showed for us that so we understand uh, to a degree at least the amazing thing that has been done that through Christ's work on the cross we might be forgiven and so empowered with that knowledge and understanding to go and to do and as uh, David points out not to see people as problems that need to be solved but rather as people to be loved and some wonderful insights inside the pages of this new book again the book newly published by Baker you'll find it at Christian bookstores throughout the Bay Area you can also get it online go to simply goodfaithbook.org that's goodfaithbook.org and our thanks to David Kinneman the author of this book and president of the Barna Group for being with us tonight Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for donald trump to hire i find out the worst enemy that i'm going to face in my life is right here in america they took my assessment and they wanted me to change it i was like i'm not changing it they had to get rid of flint with in-depth interviews archival footage and never before seen personal record to the man behind the headlines i just felt like i was drowning flynn deliver the truth whatever the cost available now watch it today go to salemnow.com salemnow.com